Welcome to Stories from the NNI. I'm Lisa Friedersdorf, Director of the National Nanotechnology Coordination Office. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Sharon Glotzer, the Anthony C. Lemke Department Chair of Chemical Engineering and the John W. Kahn Distinguished University Professor of Engineering at the University of Michigan. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today. To get us started, can you tell us how you first got involved in nanotechnology? Sure. First, thank you for having me today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. My first foray into nanotechnology was when I was working at NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Gaithersburg, Maryland. I had gone there as a postdoctoral fellow after I got my PhD. And then I had a permanent position there. And sometime around uh, the late 1990s, 2000, um, my postdocs and I started working um, on studying how polymers behave in the vicinity of a nanoparticle using computer simulation. And then in 2001, I took a tenured uh, faculty position at the University of Michigan. When I started at Michigan, I took the opportunity to think about what kind of research I wanted to do. And I looked at what would be at the intersection of what was exciting to me and what was important in science, what I could write proposals for and get funded for, and also what used my particular skill sets um, and what I was good at. And that for me, was in the area of nanoscience and nanotechnology. So this was in the early days of the Nano National Technology Initiative. For me, at that time, this was an exciting time in nanotechnology because there uh, were many groups trying to make nanoparticles out of all sorts of different materials, out of metals and semiconductors and, and polymers and trying to make nanoparticles of whatever shape they, that was possible and, and be able to functionalize these nanoparticles with different kinds of molecules um, with the idea that one day we'd be able to self-assemble these designer particles into new structures with cool new properties. And as a computational scientist, this was to me a perfect field to get into because the design space, the possibilities were really infinite. And I saw a real opportunity for computer simulation to try to figure out how do nanoparticles interact? You know, how do they come together? And how can we predict what structures will form from different kinds of nanoparticles and what those structures might be able to do once they could self-assemble? So you talk about using computer simulations to design materials. Can you share the process that you use? Do you start with these are properties I want to create? Or do you start with if we pull them together, then predicting what the properties might become? That's a great question. Um, the that's perhaps the difference between the first thing that you described, which I would call like inverse design. Right. I, I want to obtain these properties. What should my building blocks look like? What should they be made of so that if I could make them by the bucket, say, they would self-assemble into the structure that has these properties or this new interesting behavior? The complement to that, say, forward design or trying to understand, given these types of 
nanoparticle building blocks, what do they want to do? How do they behave? What sorts of structures do they want to form? In my research, I like to position us out in front of where things are today, trying to anticipate where is the field going and what will we need to know when we get there in order to accomplish the scientific goals that we have. When I first started working at, at Michigan and, and, and really wanted to go into nano, I read a lot of papers and I saw there were many chemists, materials, chemists, material scientists that were making nanoparticles out of, say, metals and semiconductors by growing them atom by atom, ion by ion in an aqueous solution in water. And because they were growing as little crystallites, they would get these faceted nanoparticles. And researchers back then in the early 2000s figured out how, oh, I could throw little molecules in to the solution, little lipids or uh, surfactant molecules, small organic molecules that would glom onto the surface of the growing crystallites and then arrest the growth. And in that way, instead of growing into a big giant crystal, they would get many, many little nanoparticles. Um, and at the same time, at the other end of the spectrum, and these nanoparticles were being grown anywhere from, say, a nanometer to 50 nanometers, maybe 100 nanometers in diameter. And back in the early 2000s, an experimentalist could grow nanocubes and publish a paper in Nature, or nanooctahedra and publish a paper in Nature. And you, they didn't have to yet do anything with them. They didn't really have to characterize them very much. They didn't have to know what their properties were. It was just the fact that it was possible to create whatever new shapes you could. And so there were dozens and dozens of new shapes that were coming out, you know, every month. And at the other end of the, of the, let's call it the lane scale of nanotechnology, which is up around, you know, a thousand to a couple thousand nanometers were the chemical engineers and polymer scientists who were making micron size colloidal particles out of things like polystyrene and PMMA. And they were much more limited in the shapes that were possible. They could make discs and ellipsoids and spheres. They couldn't get these cool polyhedral shapes that are possible when you're growing things, you know, atom by atom. But they were working on trying to functionalize these particles, um, and they made things like Janus particles, where they could coat one side of a, say, polymethylmethacrylate sphere with gold. They could make one side hydrophobic, one side hydrophilic. And so they were working the pattern on this end. And these two groups of, of scientists and engineers back in the early 2000s, weren't really talking to one another. They weren't going to the same conferences. But from a computer simulation point of view, these were all part of the same story. Because at the end of the day, there were nanoparticles with shape, with interactions, where the because of the shape and because of where, how the molecules are distributed on the surfaces of the particles, you had anisotropy. And then the question was, okay, now that you can make these particles that have anisotropic shape and interactions, what sorts of things can you self-assemble out of them? 
And so that's how I really got into nanoscience is saying, let's look ahead, say 10, 15 years. At some point, we, the field, will be able to make any kind of particle we want out of any material on any size scale between nanometers and microns, you know, with any kind of properties we want. And we'll be able to make it by the bucket. And when we get to that point, we're going to need to know now that we can make anything, what should we make? What's even possible? And, and how should we make it? You know, maybe there's 27 different kinds of what we call patchy particles, particles that are functionalized in this anisotropic way that will all self-assemble into the same structure. But maybe some of them will do it better than others. So maybe some will make beautiful ordered structures that will grow up to, you know, centimeters in size. Um, and maybe others will form crystals really quickly, but with lots of defects. Um, and so just understanding how to design the particles and how to design the assembly pathways by which they form seem like a completely open area back then. And so that's where my group has been largely working now over the last 20 years. So what do you think has been the most exciting finding or unexpected result that you've seen in your group? One of them is that we now know that nanoparticles can self-assemble into the same crystal structures that atoms can form. Of course, they're on bigger scales, right? The nanoparticles are now playing the role of the atom. And so the spacing between them is, is different, that the interactions are different, the energy scales are different, but they're exactly the same crystal structures. And we call them colloidal crystals to represent the fact that they're crystals not of atoms, but of colloidal nanoparticles. So it was known early on that nanoparticles could self-assemble into simple crystal structures, like a face-centered cubic crystal or body-centered cubic crystal, which are common, um, simple crystal structures with very small unit cells or repeat units. But now we know that it's possible to self-assemble extraordinarily complex structures and a great diversity of complex structures from nanoparticles, many of which are isostructural to atomic crystals, meaning they're the same structure as an atomic crystal. But it's also possible to make structures that are not seen for atomic crystals because you don't have the same kind of quantization that you have for atomic crystals where quantum mechanics is dictating the kinds of structures that you get. Another thing that is extraordinary to me that we discovered quite by accident was the incredible role of entropy in ordering nanoparticles into crystal structures. It's been known since the time of, of Onsager in 1949 that even without any explicit interactions, no attraction of any kind between particles, Onsager wrote a paper in 1949 where he predicted that very long, very thin, hard rods, basically like billiard balls, hard interactions like billiard balls. He predicted that those very long, very thin, hard rods, when crowded sufficiently together, would line up. They would give up rotational degrees of freedom to gain translational degrees of freedom. And that is 
in order to increase the entropy of the system. So for decades and decades, it's really been known, but has been like the best kept secret by the soft matter community that particles, hard objects without any attraction whatsoever can choose to order to maximize the entropy of a system. And, and that's surprising to many people, right? So statistical thermodynamics dictates that all equilibrium systems tend to minimize free energy. And when you're working at the nanoscale, then statistical thermodynamics is at play, right? If you have nanoparticles in solution, like in water or in an organic solvent, and those nanoparticles are anywhere from a couple of nanometers to a couple of microns, those particles are moving about like pollen grains in water, exhibiting Brownian motion. And that means that because they can move around, they can access lots of different possibilities, lots of arrangements. And so minimization of free energy is what will dictate the kinds of structures that you get. And when you don't have any explicit interactions between particles, then the only energy contribution in the system is coming from the entropy of the system. And so we discovered this quite by accident. We were studying tetrahedrally shaped nanoparticles. And we were trying to come up with a realistic computer model of tetrahedra made of cad selenide and cad telluride in water that were coated with organic ligands. And the, the big challenge there is all the different kinds of forces that are at play. You can have van der Waals interactions between the organic ligands, which will tend to aggregate the particles. The particles can be charged. And if they're like charged, then there will tend to be a repulsion between the particles. There can be, uh, you know, hydrophobic, hydrophilic interactions. In addition to being charged, they might, the particles might have a, a, a magnetic moment to them. And in a computer simulation, if we really want to be able to predict what structures nanoparticles will self-assemble into, we need to be able to describe all of those forces. And so my students and I were, were working on, on that. And we just wanted to understand what were the individual contributions to the self-assembly of these particles. And if we turned this force off, but kept this force on, what would it tend to do? So we could really understand why, why assembly would happen and how it would happen. And so at some point I told my student, just turn off all the forces and then we'll turn on the forces one by one and then see what the different forces do and which ones are more dominant than others. And before we could ever get to turning on the forces again, all we had were these billiard ball type forces where the particles couldn't overlap each other, moving around like little brownie and pollen grains in water. Um, and we found that when the system was became somewhat crowded, then these tetrahedrally shaped nanoparticles self-assembled into one of the most complex crystals that it's known. It's called a, a quasi-crystal. And this particular quasi-crystal had 12-fold rotational symmetry, so it's called a dodecagonal quasi-crystal. And that just knocked us off our chairs. It was utterly unexpected that the simplest possible shape, the tetrahedron, right, the simplest possible three-dimensional shape, could self-assemble into something so complicated as that. So that that paper was um, published in Nature. 
And a, a picture of the quasi-crystal ended up being in the science section of the New York Times in the first week of January of 2010. So for a week, it was the science story of the decade. How exciting. What is the makeup of your group and how do you assemble a team? Great question. My team is very interdisciplinary, very diverse. Nanoscience and nanotechnology sits you know, at the nexus of many disciplines. I mean, really, all of the physical and chemical sciences come together when you're doing nanoscience research. And so my students are chemical engineers, they're material scientists. Some are getting PhDs in macromolecular science and engineering, physics, applied physics. Sometimes I have mechanical engineers, computer scientists, chemists, and the different backgrounds. And it's not so much the skill sets, but it's the way of looking at a, a scientific problem and the types of questions that you tend to ask or the way that you ask them, which you learn a little bit differently in every one of these disciplines comes together in this very magical way that drives the kind of research that that we do, drives I think the creativity of the systems that we study and the kinds of questions that we ask and the way in which we do the science that we do. And I'd like to get your perspective on nanotechnology broadly. What have been some of the most exciting achievements for nanoscience and what excites you most about the opportunities yet to come? Of course, as you know, nanoscience, nanotechnology is uh, such a broad field. And so there are extraordinary advances that have been made at the molecular scale um, in, in nanoelectronics, you know, the rise of, of graphene and what's possible with graphene and carbon nanotubes. And I could go on and on. I think one of the most exciting things about where nanoscience is today is that we can really start thinking about making nanomaterials that can begin to rival the complexity of biological systems. Biological systems are extraordinarily complex. Of course, the components of biological systems are on the nanoscale. And with the ability to now literally make objects at the nanoscale, atom by atom, molecule by molecule, nanoparticle by nanoparticle, and being able to place interactions wherever we want to and combine different kinds of materials together means that we can start thinking about making very heterogeneous, complex materials that have entirely unusual behaviors or that bring together properties and behaviors that may typically be antagonistic with one another, something that's very, very soft, but also very, very strong. We're also, I think, right at the beginning of the ability to make nanoparticles intelligent, if you will. There's a very active field of research in soft matter physics called active matter, which is looking at colloidal particles that have, loosely speaking, their own little energy source, like a little jetpack on the back of every particle that can propel these particles forward in solution. And so they start to interact with new kinds of forces. 
right? So not just the typical types of forces. That combined with the ability to make these very complex designer objects, I think is going to open up a new field of colloidal robotics, for lack of a better term. So this is, this is you know, robotics at tens of thousands of nanometers and below, right? Where we can think about making functional assemblies of nanoparticles that can locomote, that can carry out different sorts of functions. Imagine this is far future kind of stuff. But, you know, if you think back to the Fantastic Voyage, that was like the first nano movie before nano was nano. I think it was made in the 50s or 60s or something where, you know, you you would, you know, shrink a little submarine down with people in it and put it in the bloodstream and they would repair all sorts of things in the body. We're not going to have that, but imagine that we could have little colloidal machines assembled from nanoparticles that can, for example, go into your bloodstream and sequester circulating tumor cells before your cancer has an opportunity to metastasize to a new location and then remove those cells from your body. Those are the kinds of things that could be possible one day. Or detergents and other things that rely today on chemistry to remove, you know, stains from clothes, say. Imagine that you could have small machines made of nanoparticles that could also actively agitate, say, stains out of clothes. I mean, I'm just throwing out like crazy examples, but this, this, these are just two potential applications of if you could make small objects that could act like little machines. It's on that scale of, um, say, a few hundred to a few thousand nanometers. What advice do you have for students that might be interested in pursuing these areas? Because nanoscience is so interdisciplinary, it's not even interdisciplinary. It transcends any discipline or even any combination of disciplines because it really is only about a length scale. And so everything is important if it's operable at this unique range of lane scales. And so take courses in physics, learn chemistry, learn a lot of biology in particular, learn about data science, learn about computing, learn as much as you can, learn about complex systems, learn about robotics, electrical engineering. I think there's literally nothing that you can learn that won't be applicable to doing research in nanotechnology. So Sharon, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I've really enjoyed getting your perspective. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Just that nanoscience and nanotechnology, while it has been, say, formally around now for 20 years, and you and I can look back on that and say, wow, that's a long time ago, is really just at the very beginnings of what will be possible. 